Blog Talk Radio. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Remnant Call. I'm excited. We've got a great guest on tonight. Uh, not only a guest, a friend. I've gotten a chance to meet him in person, and that is Carl Gallops. And I'm going to bring him on here in just a moment. Uh, if you didn't hear last week's program on godly sorrow, uh, folks, I, I there's so much information out there right now. There is so much knowledge that's being dumped at an unbelievable. Ray, the book of Daniel talks about a time of knowledge will be increased, but the danger in the body of believers today is knowledge overload and relationship underload or undergrowth. There's no growth in the relationship with God, but there is so much dumping of knowledge that we get bombarded and we forget to minister with the soul and the spirit towards God. Because if you don't get that part right in your walk with God, this knowledge will simply end up being just knowledge, and that's it. And so Godly Sorrow it is a program about bringing us closer to understanding what is repentance and, and what it is that we're being saved from. And, and, and so we talk often about a Savior and I question is, well, what are you being saved from? Are you just trying this Jesus thing on to get a buzz out of it? Or is there something that's touched your heart and has convicted you that you want to follow this awesome God who said while you were yet sinners, he laid down his life for you? That's the one I want you to fall in love with. And that's the one that I want you to give everything to, because I'm telling you, he is worth it. Well, folks, I'm going to get right into this. Thank you, all those who like us on Facebook. Please like us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to our mailing list on Facebook. You can pick it up there. Uh, check out our archives. Uh, they're all over different places. You can find them out. And I'm not going to waste any more time with that. I'm going to bring on our guest this evening, Pastor Carl Gallops. Pastor, are you there with us? I'm here, Brother Frank, and listen, I'm, I'm just honored to be back with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, amen. Pastor, our guests know you very well, but for those who are just joined in since the last time you've been here, Pastor, you've been, you've been in this business now for just a couple of years, am I right? My 33rd year as the senior pastor of this church, and, um, and prior to that, I spent uh, 10, almost 11 years in Florida law enforcement, and 
with two different sheriff's offices under three different sheriffs, and uh, and some and one of those departments had a lot of investigative experience and worked uh, directly w- with the investigators on my own uh, criminal investigation. So, so between uh, you know ten, eleven years in law enforcement and thirty about thirty four years in total ministry, but going on my thirty third in one church, uh, yeah, got, got quite a few years under my belt now. Well, amen. <laughs> Well, Pastor, not only that, and I know that law enforcement, you know, if you think about it, law enforcement really is one of those jobs that is a perfect lead-in to being a pastor because you're an investigator. Actually, to be a student of the Bible, because I know investigations is something that uh, when you're in that line of duty, you have to do. And through the years, you have done some serious insights, and and you've written many books like The Magic Man in the Sky, Final Warning, The Rabbi Who Found Messiah. Be Thou Prepared When the Lion Roars, uh, Gods and Thrones, and now your latest book, The Gods of Ground Zero. How, what has been the driving force behind you to get this information out for your last book? Because the last time we had you on here, we had you talk about uh, Gods and Thrones, and you really uh, you know, went back, uh, talked about uh, some of the things that had happened in the beginning, uh, and then in Noah's flood, and 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 through on to today, but it seems like you weren't quite finished with it, and now we're at the, another book called Gods of Ground Zero. What is it in this book that differs from the first one? Yeah, thanks. Well, Gods of Ground Zero is kind of a sequel to Gods and Thrones. You're right. However, it's not necessary that you have read one or the other for the for the other one to stand completely on its own. And that was quite a chore to do it that way, actually. But I wanted to make sure that somebody didn't buy the new one, you know, Gods of uh, of, of Ground Zero, and then start reading it and say, "Man, I don't understand this. What what am I missing?" And then and then they realize they they should have read the first book. Then they're going to feel like they've been you know cheated, bait and switch, and all that. So I don't do that to people. I just love teaching and preaching the word. But when I finished with Gods and Zero, excuse me, Gods of Ground, uh, uh, excuse me, Gods and Thrones, and I put that out there, um, man, we've had such overwhelming response to it. And people, there are two or three areas in that book where people wanted me to go deeper and wanted more answers. And some people had some questions, and I started to get some of those questions. I thought, man, I, sh- I really should have addressed that in, in Gods and Thrones. So I said, you know, I, I, I've got to go deeper. I've got to. I've got to write another one, and I've got to answer their questions, and I've got to go deeper. Plus, I'm continually learning and studying, and I learned even more, and saw so much more, and saw that the scholars have been seeing this stuff for generations, and but yet it's not being taught in seminaries. Therefore, so many pastors and Bible teachers don't know it. Most Christians don't know it. Uh, if they read their Bibles, they know it, but they don't hear anybody talking about it, so they think, well, maybe, I, maybe I'm just crazy. So anyway, that's why I did it. Now, what's different about it? Okay, there are 40 chapters in this book. Now, don't freak out, folks, because they're about I, – I, I wrote them five pages each. They average five pages. It's a, each, each chapter is a quick, snappy read, uh, and but chock full of good information. I wrote it so that – Anybody in the pew that likes to read and knows the Word of God or wants to know the Word of God can understand it. It's not written at a doctor's degree level, um, you know, but, uh, but but I didn't write it at a child's level either. It, it, you know, so so I just want folks to know that you can you can pick this up and just immediately get into it. Now, if you've read Gods and Thrones, 
you will recognize that out of the 40 chapters, there are three or four, maybe five, no more, uh, that are similar to gods and thrones. I didn't just recopy the words. I put more information about certain topics, but I had to build the, the case, for example, the understanding of the word gods and the understanding of the divine council and and you know, and then from there, I was able to jump jump off into gods of ground zero. And brother, so what's different about it is not only do do I go extremely um, deep into the study of 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 the Garden of Eden because that really is the original ground zero. That was the first terrorist attack the world has ever known. I mean, it was the it was the stealing of our souls. It was the stealing, the 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 killing, stealing, and destroying of of God's God's uh, throne of fellowship on the face of this earth. But it is being restored. And the bottom line is. It, it connects all the way, the, the, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 22 is the restoration of Eden. And not only can you clearly see it because it's the, the throne of God, the throne of the Lamb, the fellowship is there. Now God dwells with men. That's chapter 21, but chapter 22. Then the river of life flows out from the throne and the tree of life is there. Well, what is this? This is the Garden of Eden. In fact, most um, uh, modern scholarly uh, translations, you know, they have the little subtitles, you know, Brother Frank. That, I mean, the subtitles are not the Word of God, but the translators will put a little subtitle over each section to kind of give us an idea of the, of the theme of that section. In most of the English translations, the subtitle for Revelation 22 is the restoration of the Garden of Eden or something like that it's, it's because it's so clear. But here's the thing. You know what it calls it? It says the new Jerusalem has come down out of heaven. The heavens and the the new heaven, the new earth. Now comes the new Jerusalem. And what's in the new Jerusalem? It's the the Garden of Eden. It's restored. The the dimensional layers are peeled back, and we see that those guardian cherubim that were placed in the Garden of Eden all the way back in the beginning, now they're peeling back. The sky is receding like a scroll, the book of Isaiah says. And now we are seeing what was there all along, the book of Hebrews says that everything on earth is just a carbon copy, especially the holy things of God, like the temple and fellowship and the priesthood and and worship. All of that is a carbon copy of what lies right behind the veil, what's really there in the presence of God, that veil that was dropped to separate man from God unless they're under the blood of Jesus because of the Garden of Eden. So the gods of ground zero makes the biblical case. Now, I want to preface it by saying this. The things you and I are going to talk about tonight and the things I'm getting ready to say, some of these things are going to shock and astound some of your listeners because they've maybe never heard it before or they have read it and they've thought it, but they've never heard a preacher, teacher talk about it. But I want your listeners to know, Brother Frank, I'm not pulling this stuff out of my back pocket. You've read enough of that book and you've read the whole book of Gods Gods and Thrones to know that anything I say, I back it up by connecting a myriad of other scriptures that say the same thing. I back it up with dozens of scholarly uh, commentary and research and attestation to what I'm saying. 
I back it up with word study, Hebrew and Greek word study. Um, I have uh, I, I have theological, I have a master's divinity degree in Hebrew and Greek, and, and plus I know how to research these things. And so I want your listeners to know that, and, and the things I'm going to say, I can give examples of proof right out of the scriptures tonight. But gods of ground zero makes the point, and here's what's different from gods and thrones. I go back to the garden. See, I touch on it in Gods and Thrones, but I touch on about 12 different topics, and, and, and I spend three or four chapters on the Garden of Eden in Gods and Thrones. But of Gods of Ground Zero, I'm really focusing in on the Garden of Eden, and I'm showing how the entirety of the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3 is all about restoring the Garden. That's what everything is about. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he rose from the dead. That's why he ascended into heaven. That's why it all happened in Jerusalem. Because I prove in the book that the scripture clearly says that Jerusalem is ground zero. It is the location of the original Garden of Eden. I can show you that in the Old Testament. I can show you that in the New Testament. I can show you that in Revelation, the book of Revelation. Remember, chapter 22 ends with these words, and then the new Jerusalem is coming down, and that coming down means it's being revealed. It's a, the dimensional layers are being peeled back. And what is there? The tree of life, the river of life, Amen. the throne of Amen. God, the fellowship of God with man. Now all things are made new. No more crying, no more pain. Our divine nature has been restored. It's now the restitution of all things. It's back to the garden like it was meant to be from the beginning. So that's kind of the general theme of this. Now, we can get into some details here in a moment that will just knock the socks off of your listeners, but I wanted them to know that I'm building the case. This is where the title comes from. From Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God is all about the fall. First of all, why the garden was created. Second of all, the fall. Thirdly, why the fall. Fourthly, what God said he would do about it. Fifthly, that the entire biblical message from that point forward is about the cosmic, spiritual, evil struggle of the demonic realm and Satan who said, I will ascend to the throne of the Most High God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. I'm stealing this thing. And it's about how God has planned before the foundation of the earth for all of this and how he's in the process of restoring it and will restore it when Jesus puts his foot where? In Iraq? In Turkey? In Iran? No. Of olives. Where's that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What will he do there? The Bible says he will judge the angels. He will judge the nations. We will rule and reign with him. Where? That's the book of Revelation. Where? In Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because when God took his children out of Egypt, out of slavery, he says, I'm taking you to the place where I have put my name. Not, not, not only would he put his name there through the temple, through the tabernacle under David, through the temple under Solomon, through Jesus Christ on a cross and an empty tomb, but he had already put his name there on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the place of the original fellowship with man. And our divine nature, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, will finally be restored, those that are under the blood of Jesus, and then we will be called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. We will be like it was meant to be from the beginning. Does that make sense to you, brother? 
It does, and that is um, that's a lot of good stuff right there, uh, a lot of information all in one book, folks. you got to get this book, and it is uh, right here. Quickly, before we jump into this, uh, Pastor, someone's already intrigued. They want to find this book. Where is the easiest way for them to get it at? Do you know it releases tomorrow? So you can get anywhere, any good Christian bookstore will have it, or they can get it. Um, uh, all of the big places on the Internet, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Amazon, you can order it. You can pre-order it right now as we're talking. It'll be shipped to you starting probably tomorrow morning, uh, Gods of Ground Zero. And what, what I just said is just the general overview I mean, this book deals with in-depth connection of scriptures, and we'll go into Amen. some of that tonight. But uh, yes. but anyway, that's where you can get it. Yeah, and all if right, they can't great. remember all of that, just my my name dot com, carlgallops dot com, and you'll see the banner there. And yeah, absolutely. And I was blessed enough to get a copy of this ahead of time, so thank God for that. And uh, you know, I want to just talk about because there's two words that really on both your last two books. It's the first word in each one, and that's the word gods. And Pastor, could we touch for a moment as we're getting started, what is it with the word gods? Because there's a big G, a little G. Can you just go into the difference? There's a lot of people now coming into this new knowledge of, wait a second, maybe there's something more. What is that gods? And you talked about briefly in the, and not to go down the whole route necessarily of the divine council, but there is an understanding out there that people are just really starting to stumble into today. Yeah. Well, listen, I can can do it very easily. Uh, First of all, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. People look at that, you know, in the 21st century, in the Western church in America, they haven't been taught the truth of God's word, and they look at that and say, oh, well, what God means is is, is don't play around and pretend like there's other gods. And, and the second commandment is thou shalt not build any graven images, you know, uh, worship platforms, idols. But wait a minute. Why would the first two commandments be about not worshiping and building worship platforms for other gods if they didn't really exist? But what we discover in the book of Deuteronomy, God himself, capital G, God, speaks of the gods, little g, with an S, and he says, which are demons. And that's in the book of Deuteronomy. I've got all this referenced in my book. So we learn early on in the scriptures, if we're paying attention, that the demonic realm, the fallen realm, that he is speaking of, of having no other gods. He's speaking of the angels that fell, the divine realm, those that left the divine council and followed after Satan. Now, now, that's the quick answer, but let me just give this overview. The word God and gods comes from the very same Hebrew word, as you know, brother, and as most of your audience now knows. In the word is Elohim. That's the very first word, that's the very first name we discover in the Bible that's used for God himself. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, the word Yahweh is used about 7,000 times. You know, capital L, capital O-R-D, it stands for the tetragrammaton, yud Hey vav Uh We pronounce it wah or Jehovah. Uh, that's 7,000 times. That's the most used name of God. But the next most used name is Elohim. The, 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 the letters I-M on the end of a Hebrew word denote uh, plural, uh, generally speaking. Like 
in English, if, if something is plural, generally it has an S or an ES on the end. But sometimes words with S or ES can also be singular. I'll give you an example. And sometimes there can be plural words that don't even come close to ending in S or ES. So Hebrew is complex just like English. Now let me give some examples. So if I use the word deer, all right, if I just sh shout at you, we're walking in the woods, and I say, deer, uh, did I just see one deer somewhere, or do I see a whole herd of deer? If I said buffalo, same thing, one buffalo or a herd of buffalo, because the word is the same, whether it's singular or plural. Now, if I say, I need my glasses. Now, you say, and, uh, what, what am I talking about? Well, you're immediately thinking those things that go on our eyes. All right, that's a singular, my glasses. My, my, you know, it's that one object that I put on my face. But if I am preparing dinner for a big party and I've just put the plates on the table and I turn to you and I say, now, I need my glasses. Now, what am I talking about now? Well, you're going to the cupboard and you're going to get a whole slew of individual glasses out. All right? That's plural, but it's the same word. The word Elohim is just like all of that. It depends upon the context. It depends upon what we're talking about. In, in Genesis, where it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Elohim, it means one God, because it goes on to say, he said, let there be light. He said, he said, he said. Then he said, um, all things are good. So we know in the singular, we're talking about God, the creator. But we continue through the scriptures, and in the English, we find the word gods, little g with an s, or sometimes we find the word um, uh, ange angelic beings. Uh, sometimes we find the word sons of God. Uh, those are all English phrases and English words to, to denote that the Hebrew word there is Elohim as well. So anyway, I know that might be a little confusing to people, but probably not. It's, it's, it's really a fairly simple concept. It's one word, and it, like our English words, and it depends upon the context. So when I say gods of ground zero, I'm really talking about everything. I'm talking about Elohim, capital E, the main God, Yahweh, Elohim, our creator, the one and only. And then I'm also talking about the divine realm. I'm talking about the obedient angels that are a part of God's divine counsel. I'm talking about the, uh, the fallen ones that have fallen, fo followed Satan that God calls demons in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and so when I talk about God's... And of Ground Zero, I'm talking about this cosmic battle, this cosmic battle for the Garden of Eden, the ground that Satan thinks he owns. Brother, and this, by the way, explains everything that's happening right now. It explains why the Temple Mount has a symbol of an abomination that causes desolation sitting right on top of it right now. It explains why there's been the most bloodshed over that piece of real estate than any other singular place on the planet over the history of the planet. It explains why when Donald Trump gave Jerusalem back to Israel just a few months ago, the world went out of its mind and why the, the, the hatred towards America and Israel and Donald Trump and everything else is just ramping up, why the Islamic nations are, are plotting and planning to attack Jerusalem, by the way, just like Ezekiel 39 said it would. And it's, it's because it's all about that. 
This is where Jesus came during the last week of his life. It's where he taught. It's where he he lived in the Mount of Olives every night, the Bible says. He came back to the temple. He was crucified there. He was resurrected there. He ascended to heaven there. He's coming back there. The church was born there. The Holy Spirit was given there. The gospel went out of there. Why is Jerusalem so central? It's the place where God put his name, the God's are on their thrones. They're working behind the thrones of power. That's my first book. And now they are also the gods of ground zero. That is ground zero, brother. It explains everything. It's the message of the whole Bible. Uh, amen. And I, you know, just even currently after, you know, of course, Donald Trump did all that. And I'll tell you, I have, I don't care whether you voted for Donald Trump, how you feel about him or what, I've never seen a man more hated it, the presidency of the United States, I've never seen anything like what's going on here. And I'll tell you what, the devil does not tear down his own kingdom. I can tell yeah. you that right no. now, and I'll leave it at that. But, but. Yeah. Well, no, you're, you're right, Brother Frank. And the reason why he's more hated than any president before, it's about Israel and Jerusalem. He, he campaigned that he would be the greatest friend to Israel that they had ever had. America's already the number one hyperpower. You notice I didn't say superpower. We're a hyperpower. And, I mean, military statisticians tell us that. I'm not just making this up. That means it takes the next two or three superpowers to, to equal the total infrastructure and total military might and total economic might that we have. And, 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 and so the number one hyperpower in the world – He's now the president of, and he's immediately connected himself to Benjamin Netanyahu, to Israel, to its strength, to its protection, to its right to exist. Then he turns right around and hands Jerusalem back, and the world is going out of its mind. The deep state, the terrorists, the, the Islamic nations, the communists, the socialists, the God-haters, the Christian-haters, Israel-haters, the church-haters – it's it's they're going out of their minds, and it's because that is ground zero, brother Frank. Does does I mean is it coming clearer now? The more we talk about it, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly, and and that kind of leads me, Pastor. I want to jump back into the Garden of Eden because I believe that's going to lead us to all that's going on right now, uh, yeah. and I know that your book deals with that. What? It, it, not without going into all the details, of course, I know which is in the book, but what took place back there that's that so critical back in the Garden of Eden that is literally rippling down now time that we are in at this moment? Yeah, okay, let's talk about it. Um, first of all, let me just start um, at the surface level, and then I'll dive deeper, but I want to lay some groundwork. First of all, let me just say, after you move first the through the first two chapters of Genesis, and we hear all about the, you know, the creation account, and then the creation of Adam and Eve, we come to chapter three, and it's astounding because that chapter three starts off with three words that have never been seen before in the first two chapters, and they just come out of nowhere. Chapter three, verse one: Now the serpent. And then it goes on, was more crafty than any of the wild animals, etc. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, now the serpent. I mean, well, who is this serpent? Where, where does that come from? Well, we go through the rest of the scriptures, and we, we are told exactly who and what the serpent is. Exactly. But you never hear the church talk about it. The church talks about a walking, talking snake. 
that, that, that convinced a woman to eat an apple, which, by the way, the apple's not there, and it, which caused every man, woman, boy, and girl by the billions to go to hell for the rest of their life and for the world to crumble and to be filled with crime and corruption and pollution and murder and rape and mayhem and filth and degradation because a walking, talking snake so, sounds like something out of Greek mythology. By the way, we never hear of a walking, talking snake anywhere else in the Bible again after Genesis 3. We hear about a serpent, but he's defined. Now, so I just want to lay some groundwork and say when we go to Genesis 3, we come and we read that chapter, and then after the whole account of the fall is done in chapter 3, we move on. The church has moved on as though, okay, that was a nice little story. Now let's get on with the rest of the Bible. Now we read about Noah's blood. Now we read about the, uh, the, the, the Tower of Babel. Now we read about the nations coming about. Then we read about the promise to Abraham. Then we read about the children of Israel going into captivity. Then we, whoa, 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 whoa. All of that, all of that is because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But you never hear that preached. You never hear that taught, and you keep moving forward through the Scriptures, and everything that happens to God's people, everything is about the Garden of Eden. And the Bible says that, if, if, if one would read it in its proper context. So, so the thing that just rips my heart out, and the reason I wrote this book, is because we've relegated the account of the Garden of Eden to a children's bedtime story, Brother Frank, and we've drawn little coloring books of a of a of a pretty little talking snake uh, wrapped around a tree. By the way, if they're going to do it correctly, he should have legs and he should be walking upright and looking at Adam and Eve in the eye. And there are a lot of scholars who agree with that, who down through the ages have said that that's exactly what it was—a walking talking snake that lost its legs when God pronounced judgment on him. And I mean, I mean, it just sounds like something out of a fairy tale book. Because the truth of the matter is, Genesis three. The elements of it are, by and large, a metaphor for something very deep, very nasty, very devastating that devastated the entire creation and caused God to seal it off from the reality, the book of Hebrews says, which will be opened up at the restitution of all things which has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Now, when I say a metaphor, please don't panic, listeners. I'm not saying the Garden of Eden is all one big metaphor, that it didn't really happen. No, there's a real garden. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what creation is about. By the way, some of the last words Jesus ever spoke, he spoke about the Garden of Eden. We'll talk about that in a moment, Brother Frank. That's a powerful truth. But Amen. the bottom line is there was a real garden, there was a real Adam and a real Eve, and there was a real fall. And it was really devastating, and it really is the center of all that God is doing in the rest of his word. How do I know those things are real? The rest of the Bible says so. But the snake is a metaphor. The fruit is a metaphor. The trees of the garden are a metaphor. How do I know that? Because the rest of the Bible says so. Old Testament and New Testament. Out of the mouth of Jesus himself and out of the other scriptures of the New Testament right into the book of Revelation. The problem is we don't teach it in our seminaries. We don't draw the connections. We don't connect the dots. So preachers don't know it. Bible scholars don't, I mean, Bible students don't know it. Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers don't know it. We go to 
church. We listen to our Sunday school lessons. When we get to Genesis 3, it's this children's watered-down mythological thing of a walking, talking snake that hands a woman a piece of fruit. And she goes off and finds her husband in the garden and brings him a bite of fruit. He eats it and the forbidden fruit. By the way, well, no, I'm not going to go there right now. But anyway, the forbidden fruit. And so, Brother Frank, what I do with Gods of Ground Zero, I just go back to the garden. First, I lay a little bit of groundwork, name gods and the divine counsel, and then I just dive right into the Garden of Eden, and I start letting the Bible interpret the Bible, and I back up everything I say with scholarly, scholarly attestation from dozens of scholars who have seen the same things I'm bringing forth here. They've been trying to connect the dots for ages, even modern scholars, but the mainstream church refuses to deal with it. They refuse to connect the dots. They refuse to speak the truth. And Satan is having a field day when all along, all of life is about what happened in the Garden of Eden. All of your sin nature, all of my sin nature goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the filth and degradation we're reading about in the headlines goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All of the hatred towards the church and towards Israel and towards the Jews and towards Christians and towards the, the Temple Mount and, 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 uh, and, and the city of Jerusalem, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. So that's kind of the groundwork Brother, I'm going to stop and take a breath and let you redirect or ask questions, but we, we can go even deeper. But it starts right there. It's, it's, we've, we've turned it into a children's bedtime story when the truth of the matter is the entire Word of God is about the Garden of Eden fall and the Garden of Eden restoration. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, about the Bible proving that the Garden of Eden is at Jerusalem, and we do see that there's this repeating scenario throughout the Bible, uh, whether it's prophecies repeated, uh, scenarios seem to be repeated. Uh, the Bible even says that that these things happened, you know, as an example, an example for yeah. us who should, who to whom the ends of the earth should come. Uh, the whole the Word of God was written for us in the last days. And there seems to be three uh, pieces that go together for me. There's a garden in the beginning. There's a garden where Christ was at before his crucifixion. And then yeah. there is the garden at the very end where we get yep. another glimpse of that tree of life. And actually, folks, we got a glimpse of the tree of life actually in the middle. His, his name was Jesus Christ. Exactly. And so, Pastor... Could you explain a little bit, uh, touch on these? You know, you said that the Bible proves it. You said Jesus talks about the Garden of yeah. Eden at the yeah. end. Could you go into a little deeper on yeah. that? Yeah, be glad to. Okay. I'm going to share something really cool with you people. Uh, this is in my book. Everything we're talking about is in my book. And, and, and so I'm just, I'm just touching the surface level of the stuff that's in this book. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's going to rock the Bible-believing world of, of, of your listeners. When they read it, the Bible, they're going to say, oh, my gosh, I get it now. This makes sense. This explains everything. This explains the Word of God. It explains the headline news. It explains my life. It explains everything that's going on. But yeah, let me let me let me answer your question there directly. Okay, when we come to here, here's one example, and, and, and I, I answer your question with 
from a multiplicity of directions in the book. But let me just do it here for the sake of this interview. When we come to the New Testament, we find a particular word that is used only three times, but it's used in some pretty heavy ways. And the word is paradise. Now that might surprise your listeners to know that it's only used three times in the New Testament. Um, but let me explain that word. That word is, the, is our English word, and it comes from a Greek word that sounds, and I'm not going to try to go all technical on you people, but it sounds very similar to our English word paradise if it's pronounced in the Greek. But all of the Greek dictionaries, all of the scholarly Greek dictionaries and lexicons say what I'm getting ready to say now. And again, all of this is documented in my book. That that Greek word is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Gan Eden, two words. Gan means garden, Eden means Eden. That Greek word for paradise, when a Jew heard that, the, the, it, it meant the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden. It, and so we just see it paradise in the English, and we miss some profound things that are said in the New Testament. But it says it to the Jew it says Garden of Eden. Now, by the way, not only is this backed up by scholars, not only is it backed up by every Greek lexicon and dictionary, but it, but it's also um, I've I've gone to Hebrew-speaking people that their first language. I mean, believers in Christ, Jews who have been born again. I've got several of them that are very dear and good friends of mine that I've gone to them in even in writing this book, and I said, "Am I really seeing this correctly?" And they and they all said, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly right." I said, well, why doesn't the church preach this? And they just shrug their shoulders and say, we don't know. It's beyond us, but it's right there in the Bible. So here's the deal. You've got this word, Gan Eden, in the Hebrew. And by the way, there are Hebrew editions of the New Testament. And whenever you come to those words that we see as paradise in our English, in the Hebrew Bibles, they all say Gan Eden. And it's also synonymous, by the way, with the bosom of Abraham. Okay? So, because that's how the Hebrews understood this whole topic. Now, let me get to to the three examples. I'm not going to give them in order because I want to save the best to last. But the passage in Second Corinthians, at chapter 12, where Paul says, "I know a man who was caught up to paradise." Right? You remember that, brother Frank? He said he was caught up Absolutely. to the third heaven. Okay, he's talking about himself. We know that Paul was caught up to paradise, and he was shown a revelation of the end times because he speaks of the Antichrist and truth being thrown to the ground and setting himself up you know, to be worshipped as God. Paul speaks of the last trumpet blowing and God's people being transformed. Paul speaks of the return of Jesus with the saints with him and the types of bodies that they're coming with. How does he know all of that? Because he was paradise, he says. But the Hebrew, the Jew, in the Jewish Bible, in the Hebrew Bible of the New Testament, the Hebrew translation, it says he was caught up to the Garden of Eden. And and what that means, that word up, doesn't mean like when we say up, we you know we point up to the sky. But what is up? I mean, it, it it's not up, it's out. I mean, we live on a ball, <laughs> you know. So if you're on the bottom of the earth and you point up, you're really pointing down, I suppose. I don't know if you're if you're on the side of the earth and you point up, you're really pointing out. So so the word up there doesn't it, it doesn't mean it's it's literally up in the clouds. It means it's in another dimension. It's beyond our dimension of reality. And Paul says, "I was caught into 
the real Garden of Eden. Then he says the third heaven, and that means the very throne of God. And again, all the scholars say that, and the Greek lexicon say that. So listen to what Paul's saying. He said, I went into the dimension. I went past the cherubim. I was invited into the Garden of Eden that has been there all along, the real Garden of Eden. The book of Hebrews says the, the, the reality behind the shadow. He said, I was there, and I saw things. And he says, by the way, your mind can't comprehend, your eyes never seen, your ears never heard what lies ahead for those that know the Lord. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 12. Watch this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking about the those that overcome, and to them that overcome, they will be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, it's in the Gan Eden of God. It's in the Garden of Eden of God. In other words, the real McCoy, the tree of life is there. And so when we come to the book of Revelation chapter 22, again, what do we hear? The new Jerusalem comes down. Comes down, again, another dimension is opened. And what is there? Tree of life. Where is it? We've already found out. Revelation 2 verse 7, the paradise of God, the Gan Eden of God, the Garden of Eden. Now, Listen to this. The third time it's used, and actually it's the first time, but I saved it to last. Jesus is on the cross. The thief looks at him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in the Garden of Eden. That's what he said, brother. Some of the last words Jesus uttered, it was all about the Garden of Eden. Why? That's what he came for. That's, it's, that's the restitution of all things. Peter talks about the restoring of our divine nature. What does divine nature mean? That we're going to become like God? No, but the Bible says we will be like the angels. It says that in the New Testament. You know what else it says? It says we will be like Jesus. It doesn't say we'll be equal to him or that we will be another Jesus or a god of our own planet, it, You know, like these cults say. It says we will be like Jesus. We will be like the angels, just like Adam and Eve were like Jesus and like the angels in the beginning. What does that mean? They never die. What does Revelation 21 say? No more death, no more pain, no more crying. Everything's made new. We're, we're back to the garden. It's all been restored. If we're under the blood of Jesus, the last thing Jesus said, not the very last words, but some of the very last words he talked about was going back to the Garden of Eden. Where did he speak them from? Downtown Jerusalem. Well, not not downtown, but in Jerusalem, right on or near the Mount of Olives, the Temple Mount, somewhere right in there. And I've got my theory about where that might have been. But listen to this, brother. Since the Bible is very clear, and I've only given a couple of illustrations, that Jerusalem is the place where the original Garden of Eden was in the earthly realm, and it is the place where the real Garden of Eden is in the other dimension right behind it, and that's the place where God put his name, that's why the temple was there, that's why... God says, here is where I will fellowship. That's why you have to have a high priest. That's why you've got to have blood. That's why there was a veil separating the holy of holies, because it's all a foreshadowing. It's a shadow of the reality that's just behind the curtain of reality. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem that last week, where does he go? Right up to the Temple Mount. What does he do? 
He confounds the wisdom of the wise, just like Malachi says. Suddenly the Lord whom you're seeking will come to his temple, and who can stand in his presence? The Pharisees came, the Sadducees came, the Sanhedrin came, the Herodians came, the crowds came. They they tried him, they blasphemed him. They And every night it says he went out and spent the night on the Mount of Olives. But then on the night he was betrayed, what did he do? He went right out the eastern gate, right to the foot of the Mount of Olives. Watch this into the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means the olive press. Jesus is the olive branch. He was pressed. He was squeezed that night. His, his sweat became drops of blood. He dropped to his knees in a specific spot. And if Jerusalem is where the Garden of Eden was and is, Jesus is now kneeling in a garden. And what does he do? By his words, he reverses the curse. Now he says the opposite of what Satan, Adam, and Eve said in the garden. What did they say? They looked at God and they said, not your will, but ours. Jesus knelt. I believe, and I make the case in my book, and I do say that this is my speculation, although other scholars agree with me, I think where Jesus knelt and where he said, not my will, but yours, was the exact spot, because he's right where the Garden of Eden was where the new Jerusalem will be, where the new Garden of Eden will be exposed to the world, and where the whole world will be judged at the great white throne of judgment, and where we will fellowship with God. Does That's all that powerful. make sense, brother? Paradise, paradise, paradise. There is, the bosom of Abraham, the Garden of Eden. You know, uh, there there is a... Uh, you know, probably the next great book to this should be called The Divine Reversal, <laughs> because really that <laughs> Well, I've got several chapters. Like I say, I'm just skimming the surface of what's all in this book. I, I agree. Just like the 144,000, uh, those who haven't defiled themselves with women. And yet, uh, if you read the book of Enoch, and um, I'm not saying it's scripture, but folks, I think it's something you ought to read. Uh, God's upset because the fallen angels, the little G gods from back then, uh, he's upset because they defiled themselves. Yes. And they weren't supposed to. Yes. And it seems like Christ came back to reverse all these curses. It not seems that he did come yes. back to reverse all of yes. these things. Um Pastor, I've got we've got about 14 minutes left, and there, I don't. I've got two questions, and so I'll, I'll try not to spend too long. The first one, though, is there's something in the beginning of this book, and it's a question I would just like your input and thought on. You quote from Ezekiel 28. There's a picture of it right in the very beginning of the book, Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16, and it talks about Satan, you know, being in the garden of God, and it says how he was blameless. Uh, and in your, it says you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. When my question would be this: Now we don't know exactly for sure, but when is your guesstimation that the fall of Satan happened? Well, listen, uh, Brother Frank, thank you for asking me that. I deal with that in my book, actually, and I quote from scholars, and then I connect some scriptures and show the readers that there is no way to know exactly. Again, Genesis 3 is set metaphorically about a real thing. It is not meant to set dates. It is meant to show an overall picture of what happened, 
why it happened, what the result of it was, and what God's judgment was upon Satan, Adam, Eve, the earth, and mankind, etc. So, but, but, um, what we can know is this. After the creation of everything, and that includes man and Eve, the gar- um, excuse me, man and woman, Adam and Eve, it includes uh, the Garden of Eden and everything, because all that's in Genesis 1 and 2. The very last words of Genesis 2, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So Satan hadn't fallen then, because everything is still good. Adam and Eve are good. The garden is good. Everything is good. So the next thing we hear, Genesis 3.1, now the serpent, did God really say? So did he do that on day 8 or when? We don't know. Some scholars believe it might have happened as much as 100 years later. That, you know, others believe it may have happened within days or weeks or months. The bottom line is, in God's time frame during that time, there, there, there's, there are no clocks. There are no calendars. Why? Because the only reason we have clocks and calendars right now, brother, is because there's such a thing called death. We've only got so much time, so we measure every second of it. We're clocking our own passing when we look at our watches, when we look at our calendars. We're admitting to the universe that we're only here for a little while. So we have to schedule everything in our life. But when you're in the divine state, the divine realm, like Adam and Eve were, and like we will be restored to, there is no time. You just just live. It's just life. You don't have to clock anything. You don't have to calendar anything. You don't have to wear a watch in, 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 in the restored Garden of Eden. You just live. No more death, no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow. Okay, so we don't know. We can't put a clock on it. And the Bible doesn't put a clock on it. But it was, some t- it was after the creation. People, because, see, people, people have said, well, you know, Satan even fell before the creation. Um, maybe, but... I think the Bible's pretty clear that that's not the case. Um, when you go to Ezekiel 28, God says this. Uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 12, this is what the sovereign Lord says. That's in the Bible. You, and we know he's talking about Satan, and I deal with this in my book. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, you can't get any clearer than that. Every precious stone adorned you, etc. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Watch this. You were anointed as a walking, talking snake. (laughs) No, it doesn't say that. You were anointed as my guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. And then he talked about the sin. And he says, through your sin. So I drove you in disgrace is what this version says. Many versions say, I drove you out because of your profanity. Some of them say, I drove you out as a profane thing, and I expelled you, guardian cherub. I expelled you. And then it goes on, and it says, your heart became proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. And then it goes on to say, and in the end, I reduce you to ashes on the ground, and you will come to a horrible end, and you will be no more. 
You know what this says, Brother Frank? It says when that fall did take place, it ruined everything. And it says a profane thing. That word profane is chalal, and it's really nasty. It, 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 the, the Bible speaks of do not chalal your daughter by making her a harlot. Okay, do not profane your daughter. Do not profane your father's bed by bringing a harlot to your father's bed. I know those are sexual connotations, but it just means anything that has to do with dirtying, filthying, profaning something. That's what Satan did. He profaned it. And then, then we read that God says, I'm going to kill you for this. In the end, I'm going to kill you for this. And then he says, you're a cherub, a guardian cherub. We read from the rest of Ezekiel that the cherubim are also called the living creatures. When we get to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see the living creatures again. What are they? They surround, four of them surround the throne of God. What are they doing? They're crying, holy, holy, holy. They're, they're, they're declaring the glory of God. They're leading in worship. They're worship leaders around the throne of God. That's what Satan was. That's what he did in the garden. That's who he was. He was assigned as the guardian of the garden, which means he hadn't fallen before the creation of the garden. God would not have assigned him to be the guardian of the garden. But he came right from the throne of God as a cherubim, the, gar the most anointed, the most beautiful, the wisest of all that were in the divine court. And he looked at Satan and he gave him a, a big badge on his chest like the sheriff. And he says, you guard the holiness of this in case anybody decides, any, any, any of the created beings I've made have ever decided they want to hurt or profane that. You guard it with your life. And Satan winked and he said, I got it. I got it, Lord. But then sometime after that, Satan got it in his heart. And God says in Ezekiel 28, because you were so beautiful, because you were so wise, because you were so cunning, because you were just filled with wisdom and splendor and beauty. It went to your head. You became proud, and you decided you would be the one who would take it. Now, that's what the Bible says, brother. So, so it doesn't give us a date, but it does get you to thinking that it couldn't have been before the garden or before the earth was created. And it couldn't have been on the day that Adam and Eve were created. It was sometime after. The next day, a week later, a month later, years later, a hundred years later, we don't know. And scholars have all kinds of reasonings why they believe what they believe. But the bottom line is that that, that tells you at least when it didn't happen. Does that make mm, sense? Absolutely. I, I remember when I first discovered that years ago. Um, just was revelation, really reading. You know, you read over something, and then all of a sudden you actually read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when you actually read it, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I never got that before. And, uh, you know, that was an eye-opener for me. Uh, Pastor, you know, we're usually right up at about an hour we go on this program, but I'm going to go just a couple minutes over for this last question I want to ask you. If it takes you a minute or two over, don't worry about that, because this is a very – personal question because I was raised in the belief that, you know, that uh, for not only church I went to, family, it just, it spread all out that, 
that uh, I was told that in the beginning that the, from Genesis 3 that the sons of Seth had married the daughters of Cain and then they had the giants or whatever and you know some of that talk about big huge people maybe that's just some hyperbole you know what I mean that's just and and so I was indoctrinated which was common very common Protestant uh, doctrine uh, of the whole sons of Seth. And so I run into to this day, this kind of guarded when we begin to talk about the God's little G, the fallen angels and stuff like that. And the old worship of, of them and, and how that kind of became Greek mythology and, and into the ancient Egyptians and everything else. And, and now we see it, well, literally touring around the world, um, from Baal and, and, and uh, you know, the, all the things that are going on right now with this whole renewed, revived uh, interest in that. But the Sons of Seth, uh, talk, could you explain your thoughts on that doctrine and why that, you know, why that may or, not, may, or may not be good in your eyes? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I deal with that in Gods and Thrones in two or three or four chapters. I don't deal heavy with it in Gods of Ground Zero because the main thing I'm doing there is connecting the garden to Jerusalem to the end and to the headlines. But I think that's a, a, a wonderful question, and thank you so much for asking. Um, yeah, the bottom line is this. We come to Genesis – all right, so you got Genesis 3, and you've got the fall, got the judgment – and now reading the rest of the scriptures, we know it's not a real snake, it's Satan, it's the guardian cherub. We go all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and we're told again, the dragon, the ancient serpent, comma, who is Satan. So we're told in Revelation that the, the ancient serpent is just a metaphor, but the garden is real, the fall is real. So you got something profane, God said, something chalal, something nasty something horrific that caused God to seal it up, to seal it off, and just to turn over the whole fallen mess to the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the of this present age, Jesus called him. So that's how nasty it was. You read just a couple of chapters later, and it keeps progressing. The nastiness gets worse and worse and worse. And Genesis 6 verse 1 says, and this is the NIV. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. And then the Lord God said, my spirit will not always con uh, contend with human beings forever, etc., etc. And then verse 4 says, and the Nephilim, which means the giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When... And also afterwards, brother, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men, humans, and had children by them, came the heroes of old, men of renown. And those uh, Hebrew words for heroes and men of renown doesn't quite translate to the way we think of heroes. It, and it, you continue to read, and it talks about how wickedness fills the earth through those heroes, and every inclination of the thought of the human heart became evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made humans on the earth. And so the Lord said, I'm going to wipe everything from the face of the earth because all flesh has become corrupt. Now, brother, <laughs> that's another passage of Scripture that we turn – we either – well, we pretty much ignore that altogether. But what happens right after it is the flood. 
God pushes the reset button, Brother Frank, on everything because of what started in the garden and what progressed just three chapters further. And God said, okay, okay, this is it. And then we read in Second Peter, we read in Jude, that something happened all the way back in the days of Noah, something so horrific that even angels were put in prison over it. That's what Jude says. That's what Second Peter says. That's in the New Testament, brother. And, 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 and in both cases, it, there's references right around those verses to Sodom and Gomorrah, that the sin was similar to that. Now, brother, when you go back to English translations of Genesis 6, it says when human beings began to increase and the sons of God saw the daughters of humans, here's what's really interesting. Out of 24 of the most scholarly English translations on the planet, 23 of them for sons of God, the words in the English are simply sons of God. The fourth one, uh, the 24th one, I can't remember which one it is, but I have it documented in my book. One of them says, when when the divine beings saw the daughters of human were beautiful, they, they went unto them and had children by them. Now, why would one translation say divine beings and all the others say the sons of God? Here's why. And I deal with this in my book. It's one of the dirty little secrets of Bible translation. The reason it says sons of God is because that is a literal translation of the Hebrew words. Watch this. B'nai, which means sons. Elohim. B'nai Elohim. That's the word God or God's. And so there are only four or five other places in the entirety of the Old Testament where that exact phrase, B'nai Elohim, is used. It's in Psalms, it's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, and it's in Job. And every other time in every other English translation in those four or five times, that term is translated angels, the divine beings. Every now and then it has the term sons of God, but the words right around it then tell you that that means it's angels. But in Genesis 6, every English translation just says sons of God. Why? Because the implication of it is so deep and so dark and so profane that most translators can't bring themselves to put what that one translation did, by the way, correctly, the divine beings. Because... B'nai Elohim means angels. That's what it means. Now, there are other variations of using the term B'nai and Elohim with other qualifying words that don't necessarily have to mean angels. But when you find that singular phrase, B'nai Elohim, it means angelic beings or beings that have divinity. Mm. So, So that's the truth. And I know some people don't like to hear it. They say, well, those are the sons of Seth. And when I hear that, I just cringe a little, and I ask people a question that they can't answer. So how is it the sons of Seth, which you will translate to mean godly men, so how is it that godly men could marry, and, and that where it says daughters of, 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 of men, or, or in, in NIV says daughters of humans, see, that's their way of, letting you know that the sons of God are divine beings. 
but the daughters of humans. But but for those that say, well, this is the sons of Seth, and these are godly men marrying ungodly women, I cringe a little bit and I ask a question, and nobody's been able to answer it. How is it that godly men marrying ungodly women, and I don't care how ungodly they are, ruins the whole earth and Mm. produces giants and corrupts the flesh? How can that be? That 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 doesn't make sense. I mean, so so a godly man marries a woman that's ungodly, and all their babies come out giants, and and the whole flesh of the human race, and everything that people did became ugly and evil, and and Noah and his family were the only ones that weren't corrupted. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Something horrific happened before the flood, and I'm telling you, it traces back to the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense, Amen. brother? Yeah, no, it does, and I appreciate that. You know, I just I'm not a you know I, I I'm not a, a scientist and, and a geneticist. I'm a network engineer in computers, and so but I can tell you this: you can't take two apple trees and get you know uh, an orange tree. You can't take two orange trees, you know, and get you know uh, something different. And so you're telling me that Seth who was Cain's brother, his children married Cain's children, and then all of a sudden we've got these giant beings coming out when they both go back to Adam and Eve at a time when genetics were in a pure state and form, when you could actually marry your own sister and have normal children. Yeah. Or your own brother. That was when – yeah. Yeah, and you said – you're telling me they're having these giant beings, and I was going to say not just giant beings. You're right, but also filthy – Wicked and corrupt, and the rest of flesh became corrupt, including animal. Now, depending upon the English translation you use, some of it you can't. You, you, it doesn't really say that. I think the King James says, "And all flesh was corrupt." Now, the reason is because that's what the Hebrew says. Yes. But most English translations make it where, well, they're really just talking about human flesh. No, they're talking about everything. Well, how do you know that, Carl? Because Noah's Ark. God says, take the animals that I bring to you. He didn't tell Noah, go out and look for animals. Go out and make a zoo, Noah. Just start finding a couple of, it doesn't matter which ones. Just get a a male and a female here and a male and a female there. Put them in a pen and load them up. No, he says, I will bring them to you. I will bring them. Why would God do that? Because he knows which ones aren't corrupt, just like he knew which humans weren't corrupt. And those were the ones he was putting on the ark. That's why in the Hebrew it literally says all flesh had become corrupt. I'm telling you, brother, Mm. something horrendous happened. And you know what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke? He says, and in the last days, it'll be just like it was in the days of Noah. And he also Mm. says, and it'll be just like it was in the days of Lot. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, I, I'm telling you, it's all right there in the scriptures, but very few pulpits and very I, few Bible studies do you hear it from. I agree wholeheartedly, and and this, you know, this specifically, I, I brought this up. It's not only just for uh, people I know. This is for family, extended family. This particular, and I appreciate you dealing with this. And one thing, it's always, and I say this to the listeners out there, and they say, well, but the New Testament says, you know, it says that we're the sons of God. But you got to remember, it says very specifically in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become 
the sons of God. It wasn't possible until Christ came and gave him the, us the power to become. And that's a whole different thing than the Benai Elohim in the Old Testament. Brother, thank you for saying those things, because here's the thing. That is the restitution of our divine nature. That's what it's all talking about. That's why Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, and he says, um, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, through these, he's talking about the blood of Jesus and, and all of God's promises. Um, he, God, Jesus, has given us his very great and precious promises so that, so that through them you may once again participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in this world caused from the beginning by evil desires. And that word is epithumia, which means filth, perversion, profanity. And, I mean, Peter says this. And, and so, so you're right. The term sons of God is used throughout the New Testament. And we're told that if we're under the blood of Jesus, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're born again, what's life about? We're moving back to the garden. That's why Jesus told the thief, because of your profession of faith in me, today today you will be with me in the real Garden of Eden, the Gan Eden, the paradise. You will be there. It's just beyond. It's right over there, Jesus might have pointed if he could have. It's just right here. It's right here, just in the other dimension. And today you will be with me there. Why? Because that thief became a B'nai Elohim. Now, that doesn't mean he became an angel, but like the Bible says, like the New Testament, we become like the angels. We become like Jesus. What does that mean? Our divine nature is restored. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember right now, but he says, and so, but th- that, it, and it says, and this is from our Father, from whom every family in heaven and every family on earth derives their name. In other words, we're named after our Father. What's our name? B'nai Elohim. The, the obedient angels in heaven are called B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, the creation of God in his image. What are obedient humans, those that have come through the testing period, that have chosen to love God and come under the blood of Jesus, even in the midst of all this filth and degradation. What are we called? To them he gave the right. He gave the power to be called the sons of God. Paul says throughout his writings, don't you know that you are B'nai Elohim when you are under the blood of Jesus? And all that means is that our divine nature has been restored to us through Jesus Christ. That's a a powerful life-changing revelation, isn't it, brother? It it sure is, and I find it very interesting that it seems like the things we're just rediscovering today at the very end of time, you look back even in Josephus' writings, all the Second Temple, a lot of that writings back then in, you know, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, we're coming back to a lot of forgotten knowledge and understanding, and I believe God's bringing it around just in time. Yes, just in time. I agree. You know what that matches? Daniel chapter 12. Daniel, seal this stuff up that I'm showing you, comma, until the time of the end. In other words, in that day, it'll all be unsealed. See, Daniel saw the same stuff that Paul and John saw. 
Paul saw it 25 years before John. John in the 90s saw it. Paul in the 60s AD, he saw it. He was caught up to paradise. John was caught up to the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4. Daniel. Daniel saw through visions and dreams and through the appearance of, of, of angelic being, through the appearance of B'nai Elohim uh, uh, came to him. And, and what was he told? He was shown the future, and Daniel fell on his face as a dead man when he saw it because he couldn't imagine it. It looked like science fiction to him. But God says, now seal this up, Daniel, until the time of the end. Brother, we're living in the time of the end. I don't set dates. And I don't know when it's going to be, but it's getting close. Flesh Amen. is corrupted, CRISPR-Cas9, genetic editing. We don't know what a marriage is anymore. We don't know what a man or a woman is. We don't know what children are. We don't know what sexuality is anymore. We're, 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 we're mixing pig flesh and human flesh, and we're creating sex robots and killer robots. Brother, it's the days of Noah all over again, right under our face. Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, is the center of the whole world's hatred, and it's just what Jesus said. Genesis 3 connects all the way to Revelation 22, jumps right into the headlines of our news, and we're the first generation on the history of the planet to see it all come together. That's where we're living, brother, and gods of ground zero sets it straight, and I've just scratched the surface tonight. Well, I'll tell you, Pastor, it starts in paradise or the garden of God, and it ends in paradise, the yep. garden of God. That's and what that, Jesus told people on the cross. <laughs> that is good news. Yes. That is excellent news. The beginning and the ending end the same way in yep. the garden can't wait. Pastor, tell everybody quickly again how they can reach you, how they can follow you, keep up with what's going on, and getting your book and all that stuff. Thank you. Very easy. Myname.com. CarlGallops.com. There's a banner right across the top of the page. You can read two or three chapters, uh, see the whole table of contents, find out where to order it. CarlGallops.com. You can go to Amazon.com tonight and order it, and you should have it in the next day or two. Amen. Well, folks, it is very worth it. And Pastor, yeah, you you did deal with that. If you are one like me who was raised in the Sons of Seth uh, doctrine uh, way, and that's very pro that was very common yes, Protestantism. Uh, yes, and you deal with it. In so you want to not only make sure you get the current book, um, the Gods of Ground Zero, but you also, like you said, deal with that. And I think it's up here around. Chapter uh, in your first book here, you do, you do give a couple of things to it about the corruption of all flesh and uh, chapters 26 and stuff like that, and you will deal with that too. Folks, it's important we understand the truth about the Word of God, and the amazing thing is it's simple because God meant what he said, and he's yep. going to do it just like he said he would. And yes. so, Pastor Carl, God bless you. Everything that you're doing, keep fighting the good fight. It's not going to be much longer. And the next, hopefully, when we meet again, maybe if we, if it all comes to pass, it will have a remnant call up around the sea of glass. What do you think? By the real tree of life, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah, I'll meet you somewhere around the tree of life, my brother. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Folks, this has been another great episode, exciting, uh, of the Remnant Call, and just thank God for Pastor Carl Gallus being here. And this is Brother Frank and Pastor Carl on the Remnant Call tonight saying good night and shalom. Oh, it's
Jesus. Christ. 